0: Today, we are going to discuss a fourth type of prayer, and that type of prayer is adoration prayer. Quick definition for you, um, adoration prayer is not outward prayer. We've talked about outward prayer in this series, like prayer of intercession, prayers for healing, prayers for evangelism, where we're asking God to use his power to change the world uh, around us. That is not adoration prayer. It's not inward prayer either inward prayer is prayers of witness, where we welcome Jesus to reside in our heart through our days or it's prayers of confession which I will talk about next week where we welcome God to examine us and then to forgive us for our sins those are inward prayers and adoration prayer is not that either it's not outward it's not inward rather adoration prayer is what I would call upwards prayers because the point of adoration prayer is worship period Now, there are two main kinds of adoration prayer at the risk of oversimplifying things. Thanksgiving, which is adoring God for what he's done, and praise, which is adoring God for who he is. And what's interesting is that oftentimes when you read scripture, you won't see these two types of prayer as separate entities, but rather you'll see them melded together. Oftentimes the biblical writer will uh, start by praising God for who he is, and then he'll move to thanking God for what he's done in light of who he is. God, you are so powerful. You are so great. And so thank you for using that power to crush our enemies. God, you are slow to anger and merciful, so thank you for your forgiveness. This is how adoration prayer works. Now, that being said, and the definition having been established, I want to do this week what we did last week. And I want to do a Bible study real quick, basically, a biblical survey of really prolific and iconic examples of adoration prayer. For you Bible nerds in the room, this is gonna be the lion's share of the sermon. Get ready, open your Bibles, get ready to write down, take notes and such, all right? But as we move through this, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention and start making mental notes of the biblical rhythms and patterns of adoration. Because what you'll find is that adoration is there from beginning to end and there are some commonalities to it. Uh, We start today like we did last week with the Exodus, with the, the story of the Exodus. Now, uh, Talked about it last week. Key point here uh, is that the Exodus was just this amazing concentration of miraculous activity. Really unprecedented throughout Scripture. There are a few concentrations of miraculous activities like it. You've got like the Exodus, lots of miracles. Elijah and Elisha, lots of miracles. Jesus and the birth of the church, lots of miracles. But other than that, miracles happen, but they're relatively sparse. But here... When Moses leads the Israelites out from the tyrannical oppressive arm of of the Pharaoh, we see amazing, amazing miraculous activity. We see 10 plagues like blood water and flies and boils and a death angel. We see Pharaoh let his entire enslaved workforce of thousands of people just leave, which is a miracle in and of itself, right? For a tyrant to let his slaves leave. Then we see Pharaoh flip-flop once again and send his army to chase down his slaves. And there's this, this really suspenseful moment in Exodus where the Israelites find themselves trapped. On one side is the Red Sea. On the other side is Pharaoh's armies bearing down on them in chariots, swords drawn. What are they to do? And once again, God provides a miracle. He parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk across on dry land and when they get across to the other side and the Egyptian army follows them, whoosh, The waters fall over the armies. Sending Israel into the wilderness delivered from their enemies. It's a moment of iconic deliverance. And what does Israel do in that moment? Exodus 15 shows us it's all adoration. Exodus 15 verse one, it says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And I don't know how you hear the songs of the Bible, but oftentimes, I don't know why, I just hear them as like, monastic chants. So it's like, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Now, again, that's not quite as exciting as, you know, the electric guitars that we have on stage each weekend. I don't know how you hear it, but okay. So you know how athletes, uh, when they're playing They oftentimes are like, they'll like cross themselves or they'll point up after they make a good play. Sammy Sosa used to do this thing where he would go like, you know, you remember this? And then he'd point up. Or a microphone gets stuck in their face at the end of the game. They're like, oh, you're the MVP. What do you have to say to America? And they're like, well, first I want to give glory to God. Basically, that's biblical. It's biblical. Because it's what we see here in Exodus 15 after victory, after deliverance. And it's what we see time and time again when good things happen to the people of God. They respond with adoration. Now. That being said, we move to another moment, similar to this. We move from Israel's wilderness wanderings to their settling in the promised land. And uh, what we find is that when they settle, there's war. There's war. In fact, the Canaanites in particular are just a constant pimple on Israel's back. And there's one interesting story of female leadership that we find in Judges. Basically, there are two women who win a war against the Canaanites for Israel. There's Deborah who is the general of the army. And then there's Jael, who's an assassin. Literally, Jael um, gains access to Sisera, the king of the Canaanites' tent, and she puts a stake through his skull and ends the war. I kid you not. You should read your Bible. There's some crazy stuff in there. Now, When she kills Sisera, Deborah, our judge and our general, sings a little ditty in adoration and response to it. And I want to read it to you. And this is like a rated R adoration song, but it's interesting nonetheless. Judges 5 verse 1, it says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. Listen, you kings. Pay attention, you mighty rulers for I will sing to the Lord, I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, later she gets more specific. She says, Most blessed among women is Jael. Sisera asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him yogurt. And then with her left hand, she reached for a tent peg and her right hand, a workman's hammer, and she struck Sisera with the hammer, crushing his head. Now, My humble opinion, I say we add this song to our worship set next week. What do you think? (laughs) Look, it's biblical. Now, then she goes on. She says, from the window, Sisera's mother looked out. Now she's talking about his mama. From the window, his mother looked out. Through the window, she watched for his return, saying, why is his chariot so long in coming? It's biblical smack talk here. Now, interesting thing, and I'm not recommending necessarily this this T-shirt as something you should purchase, but interesting thing, I actually saw a lady wearing this shirt once. Check this out. Biblical womanhood, Judges 4 and 5. And again, I am not making a recommendation here for this shirt. This is not the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jael. But this is Judges for you. Read the book. It's rated R. And here we have a general singing praises to the Lord over a royal assassination. Now, on a holier note, my favorite psalm of adoration, and there are many, is Psalm 145. It's 21 verses. Go read it all later. I'm going to give you one right here, a psalm of David. God is magnificent. He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to his greatness. Generation after generation stands in all of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Now, fun Bible fact for you, did you know that the last six psalms in the Psalter are all psalms of adoration, psalms of praise? So if you ever find yourself grasping for words to adore God in your prayer life, open your Bible to the middle, make your way to the back of the psalms and you can get some inspiration there. Now, after David, we have his son Solomon. And uh, his son Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem where God's presence would dwell. This is a monumental moment in the history of the people of God, and at uh, at its de- uh, dedication, there's an adulatory eruption of uncontrollable adoration. They basically celebrate this iconic moment by celebrating God. First Kings eight twenty three. Solomon says, O Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in all of heaven above or on earth below. You keep your covenant. You show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my dad. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands. You have fulfilled it today. Will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. I love it. Solomon goes on in his adoration to declare that his hope for the temple is that it will draw the nations of the world in to adoration of their God, Yahweh. Now, uh, next, what about Job? What about Job? Well, if you know anything about Job's story, uh, Job's story is one of great suffering. Basically, he works through terrible suffering with God in prayer. It's actually a model for all of us if we're grieving. Now, the thing is, is that Job, Job goes hard. He grieves hard. He, he's like desperate and depressed and suicidal at times. He complains. He whines. He's angry at God. He questions. And God just takes it because that's where God wants us to ventilate our emotions. But, but here's the thing about God. He's slow to anger, but eventually he... He angers and he does not let Job's irreverence and questions go unchecked forever. No, eventually God talks back. The end of the book is just awesome because God finally tells Job enough of your whining. The KJV says uh, that God says this to Job. He says, Job, gird your loins like a man. And I don't even know what that means, but it sounds serious. Gird your loins like a man, Job, because I'm about to talk to you for a second. And then he teaches Job about adoration. Job 38, just some select passages here. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Hey, Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear Cause the dawn to rise in the east? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, Job, of course, for you were born for all that was created. And you are so very experienced. For four chapters, four chapters, God goes on proclaiming before Job who he is. And eventually by the end of it, Job's just basically in an adoration coma, adoration paralysis. And he responds to God like this. It says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do anything and no one can stop you. He just relents and repents in adoration. Now I could go on in the Old Testament. Um, We're gonna skip over the prophets. There's so much there. But I want you, before we move to the New Testament, I want you to make notice here of all the occasions that provoked adoration. We have deliverance that provokes adoration. Victory that provokes adoration. Worship that provokes adoration. National consecration and commemoration that devotes adoration. And we have suffering that provokes adoration. Basically everything provokes adoration for the people of God. Now, fast forward, let's move to Jesus when jesus prayed apparently there was something different about how he prayed because in luke chapter 11 his disciples ask him to teach them to pray and when jesus teaches them to pray he begins with adoration one of jesus's disciples said to him lord teach us to pray as john taught his disciples and jesus said to them when you pray say our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name Immediately after Jesus' death and uh, resurrection, the age of the church is born. And we're told in Acts chapter 2, from the beginning, that all the believers are devoted to prayer. And we see that this prayer is built on constant adoration. In fact, Paul teaches us that constant adoration is the will of God for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says, Always be joyful always never stop praying never be thankful in all circumstances there it is all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus and it's not just God's will Paul goes on in Philippians 4 to tell us that it's the key to a life of peace Philippians 4, eight, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Now, our Bible study's almost over, but let's close it here by fast forwarding to the end. Finally, in Revelation chapter five, we are given a glimpse of heaven. And you know what we see in heaven? You know what our future is? It's all adoration. John looks into the throne room. Revelation 5.11, it says, then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. Imagine that right now, thousands upon millions of angels. If we could peel back the sky, peel back this material dimension and see into the spiritual realm of heaven, what would we see? Thousands upon millions of angels singing together. And what are they singing? Revelation 5.12, it says they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Listen to the adoration here. "And, And then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Adoration. It's our history, and honestly, it's our destiny, y'all. Now, one more story here. Quick backtrack to Jesus. This may be the most fascinating example of adoration in all the Bible, at least for me right now, okay? In the life of Jesus, we see uh, women anoint Jesus' feet with costly perfume. Uh, We see them do this in each one of the four Gospels. It was a scandalous, a beautiful act, but a scandalous act of adoration that always got everyone's attention. And apparently this was like on trend back then because if we read the Bible closely, it seems that there were multiple different women who did this, even though today in our minds, we compact it all down into one story of one woman who anointed Jesus with perfume. I have a diagram for you. And I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Jonathan to leave the, the diagram up for you while, while I kind of narrate through it. But what you'll see here on it is uh, is how I've mapped three different scenarios and their diverging details. Matthew and Mark basically have the same story of the woman who anoints Jesus with perfume, Luke has a bit of a different story, and so does John. You can go check them out for yourself. But when you look closely, what you see is that it's clear really from just the location alone, that would be row two there, from the location alone, that these are three unique instances. One is in Simon the leper's house, which is located in Bethany. One in, the one in Luke is in the Pharisees, in a, in a Pharisee's house, which is in the region of Galilee. And the one in John is in Lazarus's house, which is located in Bethany. Now here's some more discrepancies for you. In Matthew and Mark's account, the woman is unnamed. In Luke's account, she's called a sinful woman. And in John's account, we're told it's Mary, like Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Also in Luke and John's account, we see that the woman wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, different than Matthew and Mark's account. In all four, by the way, the woman is condemned. But in Matthew and Mark's account, she's condemned by the disciples. In Luke's account, she's condemned by the Pharisee who's hosting, and in John's account, she's condemned by Judas Iscariot in Lazarus' house. And in each case, Jesus defends the woman, but in Matthew and Mark's account, he defends her by memorializing her, as we'll see in just a second. And in John's account, he defends her uh, by, uh, by forgiving her. Excuse me, in Luke's account, he defends her by forgiving her. Now, okay, For those of you who are Bible nerds, you can go back later and compare and contrast and see what's up there. But but here's my point in showing you all these differences, okay? What's my point? Here's the point. My goal is not to solve the problem here of how many times Jesus was anointed and by who and where and all that. No, I just find that this confusion about who and how many and where to be profoundly illustrative of the actual point of adoration. Every other type of prayer centers on us. Outward prayer centers on what we want God to do in the world. Inward prayer centers on how, what, uh, or, uh, what we want God to do within us. But adoration prayer is not about us, it's upward prayer. So we fade into the background. As I said in Matthew and Mark's account, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 26, 13 of the woman, he says, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done Will be remembered. To which we're like, Who's she, Jesus? You didn't give us her name. We don't even know her. And yet, the spirit who inspired scripture is like, Exactly. Now you are beginning to understand whose name is actually important. In adoration, we become lesser, he becomes greater. In adoration, we are forgotten in light of the one who deserves all the glory anyways, the king and the keeper of history. It's in his grandeur and in his greatness that we allow ourselves to be confused and compacted, nameless and forgotten in one unified chorus of adoration. Amen? Amen. That's, that's adoration and how... The Bible draws it up for us and it's beautiful and it's necessary. Now, what did you learn? Bible study over, let's get practical here to close. What have we learned here? Well, I wanna give you just a few observations about adoration to close. Uh, First, as we see in examples like Deborah and the Psalms, first we learn that adoration prayers were often poetic and sung poetic and sung. I keep telling y'all that the key to unlocking your prayer life is worship music. Some of you you need to listen to more worship music because there is something about the arts, the Bible shows us, that can capture our longing for and our worship and wonder of a God that is beyond imagination. Come on my soul, don't you get shy on me, lift up your song. Cause you've got a lion inside of those lungs. Uh, was it get up and praise the lord right like like that lyric we, we just introduced this gratitude song uh you know in the last month or two and that lyric just just summons adoration inside of me like every time we're seated, i'm like throwing my hands and singing at the top of my lungs and the person next to me is like who's this guy oh it's the preacher he's really he's really into this right but but you see like this is one of the great biblical callings of kingdom artists it's adoration so artists You are our worship leaders. Teach us to express the wonders and the incomprehensibility of our great God through the gifts that he has bestowed upon you. C.S. Lewis writes in his book on prayer, Letters to Malcolm. uh, he, He says that the believer should see the beauties of life as shafts of glory in which we can look into heaven. He says, whether it be the world around us or just a happy moment or art, like an evocative song, a moving play, a masterpiece painting, through these, he says, one's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And this is your mission statement, artists. Lead us, lead us back up the sunbeam to the sun. Second thing we learn about adoration, as we see in Moses in the early church, is this. Um, adoration usually precedes every other type of prayer. It usually precedes every other type of prayer. Or in other words, it's a part of, it's baked into every other type of prayer. And the reason why is because adoration reminds us why we're even praying to God to begin with. It's because God can do something. He can do something about it. This past week, uh, I got the honor of praying for a young father and husband in our church who's suffering from brain cancer, again, wonderful wife, beautiful children. They're stakeholders at Northeast. His parents have been coming to Northeast for over two decades. It's just sort of suffering inflicted on a family where you're like, they don't deserve this, but We went, some of our pastors went, some of our elders went, we laid hands on them, we prayed over them, we asked God for healing, we cried and wept and hoped together. And I got to be honest, after the prayer was over, I I wasn't feeling all that good about it. Like I was just sad. I was sad. But then the mother came up to me and this is what she said. She said, can you believe the God of the universe welcomes us into his throne room and he listens to us, he asks us to bring our troubles to him. I don't know if God will heal him, but I know that God is the only one who can. (laughs) And amen, oh, it convicted me in this moment, amen. And you see, you see how adoration works? You see how important it is? It reminds us of why we pray to begin with. Now on that note, third point about adoration, as we see in Job, is this. Adoration is what carries us through hard times. It's what carries us through hard times. Another story for you. Uh, earlier in the series, I asked people to send in prayers and a Northeast brother of ours uh, shared his story of the power of prayer with me. I'm gonna read it to you. Uh, my buddy wrote, he said, uh, I grew up one of seven kids, three older sisters, three younger sisters, and there's me, only boy right in the middle. Uh, as a kid, we always went to church every Sunday and usually Wednesday night. My parents divorced when I was in first grade. Us kids learned about it by my mother picking us up from school one day with the car packed telling us to get in so we could embark on traveling across the country. What I thought was a fun adventure quickly turned into the start of the worst years of my life. I attended 18 schools by the time I graduated high school because we moved so often. A single mother, I spent my childhood growing up in shelters Projects and cheap motels. Goodwill vouchers and lost and found were where I routinely got my clothes. And breakfast and lunch at school were often the only meals I had for the day. Nobody ever really sees what's happening at home behind closed doors. So nobody's seeing the physical beatings that are leaving scars on my body. Nobody's seeing the mental and emotional abuse of being constantly berated. Nobody's seeing my family member who takes it even further, eventually molesting me. Nobody sees a young nine-year-old boy hiding alone in his room, pleading quietly, why me? I was 16 when my mother kicked me out of the house. I often joke that I was one out of three or one out of seven or one out of whatever the new statistic was. Statistically, I should either be in prison, living in the projects or dead. But he writes, I can vividly remember, don't miss this. I can vividly remember lying awake at night crying into my pillow and imagining I was resting my head on God's lap. I had no dad. Everyone kept saying God was our heavenly father. And the imagination of a kid is an amazing thing. At the time, I never thought what I was doing was praying. I wasn't using big fancy church words, eloquent long sentences or 10 names in a row when I addressed God, I was just a kid. A kid venting my frustrations and sadness, telling about the few joyful moments I had and questioning, pleading, when will this get better? And it did get better. He goes on to write, I went through hell and back as a kid, but God was always there. Years of pillow talk chats with someone I could never see, someone who didn't say anything back, but someone who I could always trust to listen and who blessed me with the ultimate friendship. Now, what a story, what a story. Every night, a young boy visualizing his heavenly father, his only father, a good father. And this adolescent adoration was literally his source of survival. Many of you have been there. Adoration can get you through. Some of the worst life has to throw at you. Now on that note, lastly, I'll end with this key point about adoration. We see this in the writings of Paul. Lastly, adoration is the key to life itself. It's the key to life itself. Now, the great fourth century theologian, um, Augustine, African theologian, uh, he had this interesting theory. He believed that all sin was basically rooted in disordered loves. So basically sin was when we either loved the wrong things or we loved the right things just in the wrong order. You see, for example, it's not bad to love to work, to love your job. That's a good thing. We're created to work, right? But if you love your work more than, I don't know, you love your family, that's going to create suffering in your life, destruction along the way. Not a bad thing to desire friendships. We're created for relationship, right? Right? But if being accepted and approved of by others comes the main thing of your life, you're gonna become obnoxious, you're gonna become an enabler, you're gonna become constantly self-conscious. You see, if instead though, if instead you just found your acceptance and approval from our great God, which is unconditional and rooted in what Jesus did, then you know what would happen. Not only will you be a better, more loving friend, but you won't need others' approval anyways because you already have it from God. You see how this works? You see? Now, this is why adoration... Consistent daily adoration is such an important practice because it is a daily exercise in reordering our loves and putting God in his proper place. And that's first place. It's the primary way we combat idolatry and it's the way that we find our identity. So if you want to change your life in profound ways, here's your homework this week, y'all. Change what you adore. And it is on that note that I conclude today, and I commission you to make adoration a part of your everyday. Come, let us adore Him. Come, let us adore the one who is transcendent, infinite, and eternal beyond time in any circumstance that life can throw our way. Come let us adore him, the one whose perfections are without rival. His character is irreproachable. His knowledge is immeasurable. His love is inexhaustible. His creativity is inescapable. His justice is indisputable. And his agenda is unstoppable. Come let us adore him. The one who is self-sustaining. He depends on nothing and yet everything depends on him. Come let us adore him. The one who is the ultimate giver of every good thing in your life. Every genetic advantage, every talent, every stroke of luck or dollar that you've earned. Every breath. Go ahead and take a deep breath real quick. Because you were given that. You didn't earn it. You're not guaranteed another. No, it's a grace of God. So come let us adore him. Come let us thank him. The one who offers grace that can forgive every sin. Let us thank him for giving us the life and the people that we have. Let us thank him for bringing us through our injuries and our sicknesses, our sadnesses and our grief. Let us thank him for all the successes we've attained and the goals we've accomplished. Let us thank the spirit who sanctifies us and teaches us how to live with love, peace and self-control. Let us thank Jesus, the one who emptied himself of all of his glory and welcomed us into eternity. And let us thank God for offering the invitation day after day, even today, to be his. An invitation to every sinner struggling with shame, every lost child longing for direction, and every wanderer looking for meaning. Life's meaning has a name. His name is Jesus. His way is love. He is worthy. And he adores you. Won't you come and adore Him today?